Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. Christian, how come we don't have a pre-recorded version of me saying that? Because it feels like that might be better. Uh, might be better in the future just to have the pre-recorded version. I mean, I, it's like always a game whether or not you're going to mess up or not. And that's really fun for me. So that's why I like listening to it live. Well, the one week every few months where I introduce you differently somehow, where I include your middle initial, always keeping it keeping it interesting for those who are following <laughs> along at home. And hey, speaking of those following along at home, we received word from the good people at Podbean that we surpassed a thousand downloads. So, wow. Thank you. If you're listening to the show out there, that is across all of our episodes, obviously, but it means a lot that people are listening to what we have going on here at Cinema Drip. So thanks so much. Just here at the top of the show, I'm feeling extra grateful today. Christian, any kind words for the folks listening along at home? I mean, I'm, I'm really thankful also. <laughs> like, thanks, y'all. This started off as one of those other, well, there's a pandemic. What else can we do? And now we can do this. It's, it's kind of fun. Heck yeah, it is. And I'm particularly excited to kick off our newest blend of the month here in the great month of February in 2021, because I'm back in charge of the blends of the month, and you know that that means it's about to get weird. And so we are happily kicking off our live action animation blend of the month with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Christian, I don't think I have seen this movie. I feel like there may be a part of my childhood that watched clips from this or part of it maybe even saw it but they just filed it away somewhere i have no idea but do you have any sort of connection to this movie before we dive into some more of the context and the background and why we're doing this blend yeah it was on cartoon network i vividly remember like late night i was either in fifth grade maybe middle school and i was watching it and thought to myself this is kind of cool <laughs> I haven't seen this before. This is nice. And uh, we'll also say, though, even while I was watching it, it felt as though it wasn't for kids. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure we're, we'll get into Who Framed Roger Rabbit, whether or not it is a kid movie. However, it, it felt not just as though something cool to watch, but I feel like I'm watching something I'm maybe not supposed to be watching. <laughs> Well, now that you're a grown-up, I hope you feel empowered to make your own choices here, but <laughs> I I can understand the impulse there. So, as is our new tradition here, we wanted to share some context, some background, some thoughts on why we're discussing Who Framed Roger Rabbit as we look at this theme. So, live-action animation is an interesting theme to me, partially because I alluded to this last week, partially because it's a mainline genre these days. Any Marvel movie that you go see is a live-action animated blend because CGI is so prevalent, so dominant in our modern blockbusters and just in modern movie-making culture. So when we think about... What about the live-action Lion King? (laughs) (laughs) I I, I used to say that, and then I started getting my, like, uh, film Twitter angry nerd panties in a bunch because it's um well it's not actually live action it's just animated to look photorealistic 
So what part of Lion King was live action? Not a I single, not a single part of it. Oh my. So even that is a good example of something that is still animated, but the old school 2d animation has gone to the wayside and now photorealism and CGI is the name of the game. And so I wanted to take a look at some of these movies that combined live action actors with traditional 2d animation. It's, a genre that isn't so popular. It has only had a few entries over the years, but it's one that has produced some joy for me and why I wanted to look at it on the show. So Christian, thank you, as always, when I'm in charge of a blend of the month, for indulging me. I am intrigued. So let's let's just say I'm going to give you a shot. <laughs> and then at the end of the month, we'll see where we're at. Here's hoping for football month round two, am I right? No, no. <laughs> no, no. Yes. And we're not going to go back to the ways of football month, although I have zero regrets about that month. But we are starting with a pretty important and influential movie. And I learned a lot about Hollywood and Disney that I wasn't expecting to learn because of who framed Roger Rabbit. So let's dive into some of the details and background here. So who framed Roger Rabbit? 1988 Disney release came out under the Touchstone Pictures label instead of the mainline Disney label because, as Christian said, it's a little spicy at parts, not necessarily kid-appropriate or kid-approved. Made in tandem with Steven Spielberg, Kathleen Kennedy, and Frank Marshall at Amblin Entertainment. They were pretty important in terms of getting this movie out. Steven Spielberg working in tandem with Disney to get this movie made. Originally, The rights were purchased in 1981, and it took a long time to actually get made and released upon the world. But the world is better for it, because Who Framed Roger Rabbit has a really rich legacy. And that's something that I didn't know as we were going in to watch this movie. Yeah. No, I... It's it's also very important in movies that have taken from it, and also how it permeated pop culture... I mean, Jessica Rabbit became an instant kind of <laughs> sexual innuendo or sexual trend. And, uh, I, I mean, it's made its way into everything from Friends into... It, it was kind of a direct inspiration for... I'm I'm not going to name the movie. Partly because it's quite overtly explicit in a way that I don't want to talk about. But do you remember that um, James Franco and Seth Rogen animated movie? You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, yep. I do know what you're talking about. Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Legacy is vast. I, I need some clarification on the Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Sausage Party connection. <laughs> but <laughs> we can discuss that later. In terms of actual impact, Who Framed Roger Rabbit really did go from a studio problem. It's ballooning budget and lengthening shooting schedule causing anxiety over at Disney, who originally didn't want to pay $50 million for it. So they agreed to make it for $30 million, and then it made its way back to $50 million, and they were stressed about how it would do. But ultimately, over its very long pre-production the actual production and post-production process, Roger Rabbit became a 
word of mouth runaway success. When it actually came out in 1988, it was a a blockbuster it was the second highest grossing movie of the year only behind rain man which so funny to think about in 2021 the biggest movie of the year is a drama and the second biggest movie of the year is a weird live action animated detective story but i won't complain it gets nominated for a bunch of oscars and wins a few of them and also receives a special achievement award for this almost seamless, perf- not perfect, but almost seamless blend of live action actors and settings and 2D animation. And most importantly, Who Framed Roger Rabbit paves the way for the Disney Renaissance. If you're not familiar, the Disney Renaissance is the period from 1989 to 1999, starting with The Little Mermaid, where Disney returns to form with their animated films. And just looking at that period, there are a lot of classics for people of Christian and Mai's generation. You have The Little Mermaid, which I mentioned. Aladdin, The Lion King, Mulan. Beauty and the Beast, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, ending with Tarzan in 1999. There are mostly hits and very few misses in that period. The only true miss is The Rescuers Down Under. Nothing against the rescuers down under. I have no clue what that is. But exactly. I have no idea what you just said. Exactly. The rescuers down under is the immediate follow-up to Little Mermaid that does not do well. But then Beauty and the Beast comes along and gets nominated for Best Picture. And it is all downhill from there. Just, or maybe not downhill. But (laughs) it's lots and lots of successes marking this huge return to form for Disney. And... All of that Did you say off. it's all downhill from there after Beauty and the Beast? Yeah, I meant that it was like smooth sailing. It was smooth sailing from there, not downhill. That's very different from I downhill. Know. <laughs> we have documented this on this show. I often use wrong words and phrases, okay? <laughs> but, again, Who Framed Roger Rabbit coming out in 1988 is a huge part in the Renaissance because it spurs a new interest in the golden age of animation. We have... Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, yes, but also Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and other characters from different studios being licensed for use in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Betty Boop makes an appearance, has lines in this movie, and people start to remember the good old days of animation. And Disney seizes on that newfound nostalgia, sort of returns to form with its movies that it's putting out there and goes from making movies every few years that uh, often vary in quality or financial success into just a string of box office winners and movies that receive lots of acclaim and awards and love from the fans like us throughout the 90s. So definitely a hugely influential movie, one that I did not know all of that about, again, before looking at it for the show. Yeah. I mean, whenever you get it, honestly, to me, the most iconic shot is when you get Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse in the same frame. It's crazy. <laughs> it's the first time they had ever appeared together on screen. <laughs> Beyond that, this is also one of those movies that's a perfect... This is a movie about making movies. Like, this is one of those genre films that fall squarely into that. Because it's paying homage to film noir. So, the detective stories of old. The one detective who has the... um femme fatale that he that's there who helps him out and he's trying to get all these clues and it's always the person right in front of him it's paying homage to the transition between black and white and color cartoons and just to this 
very vivid portrayal of a lively Hollywood. A Hollywood that's bursting at the seams where movies are happening at all points. And also very staunchly different when you look at where we are right now where Hollywood's basically at a stop. Not at a stop, but it's slowed down from what it used to be. Yeah, this is kind of a look at how great it is to be in the culture. That being said, I don't know if I should bring this up here or later on. Um, this movie is very problematic. I mean, incredibly problematic. Jessica Rabbit, and honestly, all the women in this movie are either sexualized or... Well, no, that's kind of mainly it. They're all sexualized and not given that many lines. And also, minorities are kind of presented solely as stereotypes. And I'm at a crossroads with what this movie did with that. Because on the one hand, believe it or not, the homage kind of holds true. In that in 1940s and 1950s film noir and animation sexualization of women was pervasive and also this is how in animation you would treat those of other ethnicities they were they were never really complex portraits of stuff so it's kind of accurate this movie's kind of accurate and like it probably happened in this way in the 1940s but did we really need it to be as explicit as it was for the sake of accuracy. And I don't know if, I don't know what the answer is to that. <laughs> I'm very torn in how I myself will answer that question. I am curious as well, mostly because I didn't think about most of the problematic things that you're mentioning while we were watching this movie, aside from the portrayal of Jessica Rabbit, who is <laughs> iconically problematic. But what about the bullet scene where he puts like, ah. the Native American... The bullet scene is, yes, that one I did notice <laughs> because I have eyes and ears and have thought about the history of these portrayals. So that too, yes, we can we can get into that. So some quick details here on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. We can chat about the major players here, those involved. Directed by Robert Zemeckis. So there's the completion of the hint that we provided on last week's episode. We watched a couple movies of his in preparation for another movie directed by him. And the animation was directed by Richard Williams, who is not a name that I was particularly familiar with, but he definitely did a wonderful job here with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's written by Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman, who I, you know, he has an unfortunate last name there, but I also haven't heard of these two, so... I might need to look into some other movies they did, but definitely a winning script here. The major performers would be Bob Hoskins playing Detective Eddie Valiant. Great detective name. Charles Fleischer as the voice of Roger Rabbit. And he's had a, an interesting Hollywood career. One of his movies where I particularly appreciate him is in Zodiac, where he is the creepy, creepy guy leading Jake Gyllenhaal down into the basement in one of the scariest scenes from any movie in recent memory. So way to go, Charles Fleischer. He is a Hollywood mainstay. We also have Christopher Lloyd as the villainous Judge Doom and Kathleen Turner reprising her collaboration with Robert Zemeckis from Romancing the Stone, appearing uncredited as the speaking voice of Jessica Rabbit. I am not sure why she was uncredited. I didn't 
look that up before the show and notice that in my research but wait then then what did they do were they like jessica rabbit playing herself <laughs> jessica jessica rabbit as herself lending her talents to this film like what 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 is that okay i don't know she just was not in the credits sequence can't tell you why a uh, little fun fact about robert zemeckis here he actually lobbied for the chance to direct it in 1981 when disney first got the rights but his first two movies out of the gate were box office bombs <laughs> and this was going to be an expensive undertaking blending live action actors with animation and so disney was not about it and then of course as it went through a screenplay draft after a screenplay draft and robert zemeckis went on to make a couple other little movies one being romancing the stone and the other being back to the future disney realized that Maybe he was more talented than his first two movies let on, and he was brought on to the project. I do go into the plot. Go into the plot, and then we'll go into some fun facts. Yes, fun facts, my new favorite part of every episode. But here you go. Here you go, the plot of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. One that is familiar, I think, in the popular consciousness if you haven't watched this movie yet. But I will share it regardless. So, Roger Rabbit is the star of... One of Hollywood's, in this movie, fictionalized production studios, where he is the co-star to Baby Herman. They make animated movies that give everybody lots of joy and laughter. And Eddie Valiant is a private investigator hired by the studio to follow his wife, Jessica Rabbit, who is also a toon, because there are toons and humans here in this world. But They coexist. Yes, they coexist, and she is a humanoid toon. They believe she is cheating on Roger Rabbit, and so Eddie Valiant is tasked with getting to the bottom of it. Of course, when the person she's accused of cheating with is found dead, then Eddie realizes there is a conspiracy at hand, and he and Roger set out to find the truth, because Roger is insistent that his wife would not actually cheat on him, and he wants to clear her name. And Eddie is afraid of being caught up in it all and wants the truth to come out as well. An old-school detective story. (laughs) As you said, a lot of film noir elements, the femme fatale appearing, but in just a (laughs) ridiculous and wonderful world where toons and humans coexist. So, Scott, we ready for some fun facts on this movie? Oh, I sure am, Christian. Do you have one prepped and ready to roll? (laughs) There are some that are uh, maybe not the most appropriate, but it is interesting to know that it was one of the most expensive movies ever made when it came out. By current standards, almost $150 million. It was like $70 million, not adjusted for inflation. But also at the time of release, I think it, it broke, it was the 20th most financially successful movie when it came out. And that is interesting though. This got appeal far and wide, and people people paid money. People went into their piggy banks and were like, I'm going to watch this film. It's true. I, people were very excited about this movie. Like we said earlier, it, it spurred a new interest in Golden Age animation, and it played on some of the nostalgia that folks had. Getting people who were young at the time of many of these cartoons being popular and getting them to bring them and their kids into the theaters, which whether or not this kids movie, we can debate. There is a couple notable scenes like we talked about in terms of characters appearing together. It's the first time that Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse appear on screen. There's also a pretty famous scene where Daffy and Daffy Duck and Donald Duck are performing dueling pianos at a club. 
basically. <laughs> What's funny about that is not just those two characters appearing and doing the dueling pianos bit, but there were all of these stipulations from studio to studio where Disney was allowed to use some of these characters, but they had to make sure that no one studio won, so to speak. So, for example, Daffy and Donald had to be equally good at playing the piano. And neither of them could come out on top of the duel. They both, the scene involves a lot of slapstick violence and them hitting each other with the piano and launching cannons at each other. And they both get dragged off at the end, but they had to maintain equality on screen. They weren't allowed to show Donald as better because he was the Disney character. That was part of the rules that they had. And Mickey and Bugs are also pretty They have to be on for screen for the same amount of time. Yeah. I have another one. Bob Haskins was not their first pick. They were considering Harrison Ford at one point, but Harrison Ford kind of costs a lot of money. You know, this <laughs> is Harrison Ford's already post Star Wars and Indiana Jones at this point. So it's not just a walk in the park to get him. Chevy Chase didn't care about it. And Bill Murray, because I don't know, they were considering Bill Murray for it, but Bill Murray never knew that they had considered him and now regrets not having learned he had been considered for the role. It's not only the people that you mentioned, but, and this is all Wikipedia research, so I don't know the truth of it all, how, you know, the veracity of these claims, but apparently Eddie Murphy was offered the role, Robert Williams was considered for the role, Robert Redford and Jack Nicholson were considered, even Sylvester Stallone, and there's even more names, but imagining any of those people in this movie makes it so different, and it's fascinating to think about what this would be like if somehow Jack Nicholson was playing Eddie Valiant. Also, I, I've got one more. This was this was kind of a dark movie, even in pre-production. At one point, the villain uh, would reveal that he was the hunter who shot Bambi's mother. <laughs> if only. If only they had tied it in. <laughs> the cinematic like, universe, is- not as strong at the time. <laughs> I mean, okay sure you know what you want to kill bambi's mom fine (laughs) and the last one here's a a particularly saucy fun fact for you but if you are quote unquote on the internet and if you're familiar with nerd culture cosplay culture con culture anything you know that jessica rabbit is a very popular character who because of her design and her on-screen sensuality has persisted in culture as a character of interest and there was a massive controversy when who framed roger rabbit was rolling out on laserdisc shout out to laserdiscs because the animators allegedly got mischievous and included some single frames that obviously would not have been allowed if disney was aware of them and one of those single frames was a singular nude frame of jessica rabbit And that caused quite a stir, obviously, but it caused enough of a stir that the Laserdisc sold out from a lot of major retailers as soon as it was available. So, shout out to Creeps. (laughs) Real big win for you guys back then. (laughs) Not sure if it was ever proven that they included that, but there's one last saucy, salacious bit for you before we actually get into some substantive conversation around this movie. All right, I thought you are done, Scott, and we're going to move on to our actual discussion of the movie. Indeed we are, Christian. Indeed we are. So, obviously, a very interesting movie from pre-production 
through its expanding budget into its inevitable release, becomes a smash hit, gets tons of Oscar nominations, sparks this interest in Golden Age animation. And Christian, that's where I want to start our discussion. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is credited with starting a resurgence of interest in the Golden Age animation and bringing on the Disney Renaissance with characters like Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny appearing together and so many other fan favorites getting included. But before we dive into the quality of the movie or talking actual criticism, as you were watching this movie, Christian, did you feel those warm, fuzzy feelings? Do you have nostalgia for this period in animation, be it Mickey or Bugs, or did this movie help you find some nostalgia, find some feelings you didn't know you had. This is where I reveal a little bit of my bias. I love watching movies about making books. I love reading books about making books. I love reading books about making movies. And I love watching movies about making movies. I love the meta element of it. It's not necessarily that I'm nostalgic for this time in animation. If a movie is good, whether it's a foreign language film, whether it's an animated film, whether it's a comedy, a drama, or everything in between, it it's it's a singular approach, and I just want it to be a strong movie. I want it to be an entertaining movie. This, to me, had a lot of heart in it. It's problematic, absolutely, and it didn't make me nostalgic for the era, but it made me think, this has been made by people who enjoy and love what they do. So... It made me think working in the movie industry at least comes with some care for what you're going for. This is definitely a movie made by people who love Hollywood, who love the movies. It's put out by Disney under the Touchstone label, if you're familiar with Touchstone. But Steven Spielberg produced it, helped bring it to the screen. Robert Zemeckis is such an intriguing director and has made so many weird movies over the years, many of which use animation or combine live action and animation. And you're totally right in that it is drawing on this tradition of movies about movies or movies about Hollywood and showing off just the work of people who love the movies as much as they enjoy making them. It's a blast in that way. And I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the rest of the the movie. There's there's so much to discuss here. Before we talk about maybe some of the negative aspects, some of the more problematic aspects, maybe start to unpack Jessica Rabbit. You know, Christian, aside from the idea about movies, about making movies, you know, what else worked for you here? What were some positives for you? The animation. The animation is top notch. I do like 2D animation. I love 3D animation also, but 2D animation is is great and almost goes into a you every single frame had to be hand drawn. So yeah, it looks good and the way that they were able to blend the two was working for me. How you see them interacting with each other, how this happened before CGI would make this at least somewhat simpler. When I'm seeing a a fight, which is which is actually kind of hilarious, not 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 gonna lie, but a fight between Eddie and Jessica Rabbit, yeah, how they blend genre together when Jessica Rabbit gets caught playing patty cake with another man, <laughs> <laughs> like absolutely, let's go for that. The animation really is spectacular, totally worthy of all the praise and special achievement Oscars that came its way. And they do so much to show off how hard they worked. 
scenes like handcuffing Eddie and Roger together, obviously Bob Hoskins being a real person and Roger being an animated rabbit, or putting Bob Hoskins into Toontown, the animated section of Hollywood where all of the tunes live. There was such thought and precision to all of these things, making sure that all of these scenes worked, all of these character interactions worked, and making sure that when, for example, live action characters are talking to animated characters that you can tell they're looking at them. Getting the details right and not just approaching it haphazardly is part of why this movie is so successful and why it still works today. Absolutely. It's funny. It's engaging. It's well-paced. It begs the audience. I mean, what must it have been like to be sitting in a movie theater, though, and watching something made specifically with them in mind because it's taking into account audience considerations even within the plot of the film. They know that slapstick will at least crack a smile on people. They know that they have to well pace it and have hand-drawn animation that is reminiscent of, I'm not going to get into the problematic nature, but Betty Boop was sexualized cartoon and then all betty boop was a sexualized cartoon and how jessica rabbit actually draws on that history it's fascinating what did you think of the design of the original characters and obviously this is partially a leading question but we have roger and jessica rabbit we have baby herman we have the weasels Yo, the weasels, shout out to the weasels. Get yourself four of your friends, wait till, uh, you know, COVID's not a thing anymore, and then go as them for Halloween. Oh, man, (laughs) that'd be the perfect five-person costume. It will require one of you to wear a straight jacket, but that is the price that you have to pay for a great group Halloween costume. (laughs) I already talked with my friends. That will be me. (laughs) It's it's such a... just a fun idea to incorporate all of these original characters and not feel beholden to some of the classic characters where you're freed from the baggage that people are bringing in, be it Mickey or bugs. You don't have to make them the main character. They're the main character of so many things already. They get to appear as scene dressing essentially just to show you that this is related to the actual Hollywood that we are in, even though we're, focused on these fictionalized which lol it's all fictional these are all animated characters but we're focused on these new invented characters like roger rabbit which allows the classic characters to increase the the joy release the dopamine as we see them pop on screen but not feel beholden to their pre-existing personas or making sure that mickey mouse wins in the end we get to associate with a whole new batch of characters and some people and their association with jessica rabbit is more problematic we can talk about that but Roger is a really fun character, and Charles Fleischer's voice work is, is really something else. It's amazing that it's the same guy from Zodiac. But you also have to... You, okay, okay. So let's, let's ground this critical talk a little bit more. Let's do it. What do you gain by creating a new animated character to lead a film that already has animated characters who lead movies? You force people to reconsider and deconstruct what the point of making animated movies is in the first place. Roger tries to spend the entire movie getting Eddie to laugh. Because 
tunes are there to make you laugh, to make you smile. Thereby getting this idea out there that cartoons were there to raise morale, to not just have your kids be entertained, but to put a smile on your face of something that is innocent there. I mean, Toontown represents innocence and joy and delight. And that's what they're going. The destruction of Toontown, the inability to get the will that will grant that money, not money, but will grant the city revert back to its residents, is is not just the loss of animated characters. It's kind of the loss of film, the loss of joy, the loss of uh, an idea an excitement in existing. I love these connections you're making because they weren't even what I was thinking about during the movie. And it's, it's fun to get this in the weeds with the movies. It's, it's fun to think about how is Roger Rabbit commenting on movie making culture and commenting on Hollywood. One of my, one of my favorite ways that Disney and Pixar have played with that concept in the past is actually from Ratatouille. (laughs) because Ratatouille is about many things. I'm not trying to say this is the one thing Ratatouille is about, but I just love that Anton Ego, the quote-unquote antagonist of Ratatouille, this harsh, harsh critic who likes things a certain way, is totally won over by the goofy Pixar character (laughs) by the end. And it seemed to be sort of a sly commentary for Pixar making movies saying, come on, all you critics, lighten up a bit ease up let's enjoy a good movie and i love when disney is able to sneak those kinds of messages into their movies obviously this not being one of their traditional animate animated classics or pixar collaborations but there's there's levels to these movies and it's fun that you can find that because for so many movies out there they're just what they are on the surface and half the fun of being obsessed with movies is getting to watch them and search and for and find these hidden layers that you can then talk about with your buddy on your podcast. Let's just go, did you have a favorite scene from this movie? Did you have a favorite character from this movie? And then maybe afterwards we'll go into, you know, that maybe maybe this movie isn't for kids. <laughs> Spoiler warning, this movie is probably not for young children. I, I don't know if I had a particular favorite scene that stands out to me. If anything, one of the more iconic sequences is the sequence where Eddie goes to Toontown, where instead of having animated characters in a live-action world, we take the live-action character and put him in the animated world. And that whole sequence is so lively and colorful and just well done, mixing different styles of animation, you know, having these goofy dancing trees and singing birds, while also incorporating classic characters that we know and love and incorporating some of the film noir elements of the rest of the movie into this tune world. Jessica Rabbit, of course, sneaks up on Eddie Valiant in this, and I won't I won't tell you what happens. We'll talk about the ending later, I suppose, but you get to see some of these film noir aspects still sneaking into Toontown, and it's not a very long sequence, and there's a part of me that wonders, man, I wish they would have explored more of Toontown, but I'm honestly glad that it's as short as it is because it's just the right taste where you get what you want. You get to see Toontown, but then you quickly return to the live action world where you get to see the rest of the movie unfold. It does not stay its welcome. And so I was a fan of that sequence. It's definitely one of the more famous sequences from this movie, but it really 
worked quite well for me. I mean, I have to say I was a huge fan of Roger because Roger represents the complete and unfiltered id. (laughs) Anything you desire or any thought that comes into your head, Roger completely goes for it. And there's something child. Yes. And there's something very childlike about that. And I think that Roger in this film is if Roger dies, basically just stop. Basically, the movie is over because it's not he is hope. I want to see Roger be happy. I don't want Roger's wife to cheat on him. It's these things that I do think we get to care about. And in terms of a favorite scene, it is the it, it it's Eddie falling and there's Mickey on one side and Bugs Bunny on the other side because they specifically frame that for you to see, hey, look at these characters you probably remember. Aren't they awesome? Again, those those making this movie, they weren't being exclusionary at all, I think. Uh, not that anyone has accused this movie of being exclusionary, but sometimes I kind of get wary of like asides or nods to other things because I think that if you don't know certain pop culture, you get blind to what the movie's about. But for this one, it's more like, remember your childhood. Because your childhood was pretty awesome. <laughs> And maybe we shouldn't forget it. Again, the layers and levels to this movie, the part of it that is living in the grown-up world where we are is actually a satisfying detective story. And if you're familiar with noir, it plays with the conventions in fun and interesting ways. And of course, if you're just looking for a nostalgic good time, you can have that too and see all these animated characters frolicking around and, and having a good time with Eddie Valiant. Oh, absolutely. In terms of scenes with Roger that I do think particularly stand out to me, uh, it's every time Roger has a drink. (laughs) You put whiskey in this man or scotch in this man, this man does not hold it. (laughs) In fact, he kind of explodes. (laughs) It's amazing. It's like a one-shot wonder fireworks. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, that that's fun! That's fun. I want to have fun. Yeah, it it that in particular is some of the best examples that this movie has of what if tunes lived in the real world. These tune characters who keep talking about how they just exist to make people laugh and make people smile. They obviously, if they were part of the real world, would have some confusing effects on physics and reality and how they are affected by things that humans are injured from or less less keen to to encounter like serving humans and and all that uh and that's one example where playing with the tunes in the real world concept really pays off and it's obviously thought out and also still stupid and fun and enjoyable uh so scott should we talk now during the rest of our time about what's problematic I think we might have to, Christian. I think we might have to. <laughs> uh, I Yes, the, the Jessica Rabbit problem of who framed Roger Rabbit. She's just walking sex. I think I disagree that she's just walking sex, but her character design is certainly a little male fantasy-esque. But, but that's that's it, though. This is kind of like the the difference between writing this story and directing it the direction placed on her makes her walking sex she is someone you want to slap you 
the way that she slaps Eddie. She <laughs> Christian, is someone... do you need to unpack something here? <laughs> Don't you dare. <laughs> but no, but that's how she's presented. Like every single thing is supposed to kind of like elicit desire from people. And the many jokes that came up in pop culture was all sexually referencing her in the immediate aftermath. And it's not just she's attractive for a cartoon. It's like every... You go, Scott, you go. I am actually going to more seriously push back on the idea that she's walking sex. Sure. Um, Because of her role in the story and some of the things that she says. So Jessica Rabbit, her introduction is very famous. It's one of the most iconic scenes in this movie. Eddie is goes to the club where she is a uh, cabaret singer, and of course she enters by sticking her leg through the curtain, and all the men in the club start hooting and hollering, and then she comes out, and her design is laughably ridiculous. If you have not seen Roger Rabbit yet, you're still listening to the episode. Thank you. But she is just an absurd hourglass figure, tiny waist, massive everything else. Uh, and there's even a joke at one point in the movie where some one character reaches down her dress to search her because he's a bad guy, wants to make sure she doesn't have anything on her. And of course, he comes out with his arm trapped in a bear trap. And Eddie Valiant looks at her and goes, nice booby trap. So there are those elements at play in terms of the sexualizing and making light of that design. But I think they also do some interesting things in the movie with that, where they undercut it or they get at something else deeper going on. I think Jessica herself has a line in the movie where she keeps being looked to as this, this vixen, this voluptuous woman. How could she be married to someone as ridiculous as Roger? Of course she's cheating on him. She's looked at as the femme fatale of this film noir light version. And they constantly undercut the fact. And so this is a spoiler alert, I suppose. So fair warning if you haven't seen it yet. But she ultimately is not a femme fatale. She doesn't have it out for the main character. She loves her husband and wants to stay happy with him. And despite his flaws, she sees the best in him. And they are constantly playing with that idea that we assume that she is going to be this angel of death because of her looks and how seductive she is. But in reality, she's not dangerous at all. And one of her lines in the movie that stood out to me, enough that I wrote it down in my notes, was that she looks at Eddie Valiant because he's criticizing her basically for all the things I said. And she looks at him and says, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. What a fascinating philosophical line to drop into your movie featuring animated characters. But I love that idea of Roger is this zany cartoon rabbit who exists to make people laugh. But what do we do with Jessica? This absurdly proportioned sexualized drawing while we can go some problematic places with her design and i'm not trying to make the filmmakers and the designers to be fully innocent but i do think that they are there's more to her and more to her character than just walking sex she's not bad she's just drawn that way that was a very good defense of that scott (laughs) thank you (laughs) it's not often that i push back at something you say and you (laughs) you greet me with a compliment after what I have an issue with, again, is her portrayal. It's not her character. It's the way everyone else interacts with her character. Because I don't think it was necessary. Or one time when Eddie is picking something up and on, like, as he's rising, his head bumps her breasts. Yeah, 
Yeah, kind of bad. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, just a bit. It's that I think she was wasted. Not Well, not wasted because she brings so much life to this character. But she is not taken as seriously as she should have been taken. She's absurd to the point where I thought it detracted from the film. And where everyone else is looking at her like walking sex then yeah, I think that some other things could have been done to regress that and instead bring out how smart she is and how loving she is to her partner. And I think that's where they go, the filmmakers, where they go is showing how smart or heroic or loving she can be and how we assume things about her and the whole world in the movie assumes things about her because of her design. And so I think... We're maybe on the same page about that um, in some respects, but you see it as more detracting from the experience of watching the movie, and I maybe don't go so far. I certainly agree that they could have toned down some of the sexualization of her design. You still could have achieved some similar effect by just trying to draw her as a an attractive woman, not needing to make her proportion so absurd. So agree with you there. I do think that they do more with her character in the world of the movie. And that was something that surprised me on watching this. I um, I sort of just knew Jessica Rabbit as this figure of, of desire and <laughs> this absurd animated character that people have been cosplaying as for 30 years. But, it, and, but further than that, though, look at her in the context of the other women in this movie. For example, Baby Herman's babysitter, or oh. whatever she is. <laughs> I don't think she's a babysitter. <laughs> okay. You need to chill out. Hey, man. Baby Herman's a grown man. He smokes cigars. He just walked underneath her legs and looked up. Uh, and not only that, Dolores. Poor Dolores. Poor sweet Dolores. Dolores played by, yeah, played by Joanna Cassidy. One time in order to get her to duck, they grab her by the front of her shirt and pull her down. It's not just who Jessica is. I do think overall it fits into this view of women that is detracting from the film. In in general, there is not a lot of female representation in this movie. Dolores owns a bar, but she also is not really given much to do outside of have a history with Eddie. So, of course, she falls back in love with him by the end of the movie. And we're not really given compelling reasons as to why. There's not a lot of exploration of their history. They kind of just go from having history to being back at it. And we don't get to explore why she left Eddie and why she's now drawn back to him. So, yes, there are definitely some some things to be desired in how this movie treats its female characters. Last thing, Christian, I want to make sure that we talk about Eddie Valiant. He's the hero of this story. Bob Hoskins playing him. You know, we don't need to go another 10 minutes on, on Eddie Valiant alone, but did you like our main character? Did you like the portrayal? Yes, I, but I thought he was kind of one-dimensional, but I thought that was the point. Because it, again, goes into what homages this movie is making. An homage, I think, for several of the women was to put them into like the femme fatale role or to put them into the um, sexualized role. For Eddie, Eddie was put into the detective role, has a change of heart near the end of the film with abs- almost no prompting, just kind of, I'm going to laugh and smile now. But I think that was more of a 
this is what film noir did and this is the reason why now let's kind of deconstruct that and just make that entertaining yeah eddie is a very traditional private eye character he has loss in his past he lives on his own he's hard drinking hard living guy got bills to pay but keeps buying booze instead (laughs) And, of course, by being forced to interact with his outlandish cartoon rabbit, he finds some joy that has been escaping him in his in his history, in his past. I really liked Bob Hoskins in this role. He's an actor who I'm not extremely familiar with. He had an interesting career. He passed away in 2014. Um, but I, I, I just haven't seen a lot of the movies that he was in. And the ones that I have seen are things like Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties, which I watched as a boy. And speaking of live action and animation mixing, maybe not a sterling example of this, this topic. But he's kind of a beloved figure. And this is one of his most iconic roles. And it's fun to see a, an actor like him just because he has a different flavor, different style than a lot of those leading men we rattled off earlier as people who were considered for the part. He's someone who I definitely want to see more of now that I've seen who framed Roger Rabbit. And I really liked his portrayal of Eddie. I think he, in particular, does a really good job acting across from these animated characters. I can't imagine how challenging that can be. And of course, now actors do it all the time with CGI characters. But without much precedent, I think he really did an excellent job there. Any other stray thoughts on Roger Rabbit? No, just that it's kind of groundbreaking. This movie's ground, kind of groundbreaking, and that's pretty cool. Yeah. As a, as a wrap-up thought, maybe, to set up some more of our discussions going ahead, Roger Rabbit really was groundbreaking in its combination of animated characters and live actors. Some other movies had played with the concept before. Mary Poppins famously has an extended animated sequence. But again, that is one sequence in a longer movie. Disney made a movie called Pete's Dragon in 1977, so a lot of years, or 11 years before this, but has an animated dragon in the real world. But Roger Rabbit does take it to a new level of putting the live person in the animated setting and involving many animated characters in the live action settings, not just the dragon. And maybe that's underselling Pete's Dragon, I haven't seen it, but definitely groundbreaking in terms of the seamless combination of these two worlds and one that makes makes possible many other movies that we've alluded to one of the next major animated live action combinations is 1996's space jam little michael jordan looney tunes action coming out in terms of space jam christian have you ever seen space jam i have also on cartoon network (laughs) shout out to the cartoon network well if you are unlike christian and myself and you have not seen space jam get ready Because that is what is coming up next week as part of our continuation of the live-action animated blend of the month. But we're not just going to stop there. We're not just going to stop with Space Jam. I'm in charge of this blend of the month. That means we got to fit a double feature in somewhere. But we will not only be looking at Space Jam, but we will be looking at a Scott Lentz nostalgia classic Looney Tunes back in action, which is a movie that I love and I'm excited to talk about on the show. Have you seen Looney Tunes back in action, Christian? Also on Cartoon Network. Wow. Okay. Cartoon Network paying dividends. You're <laughs> you're with me in rewatching both of these movies. But Space Jam has its sequel coming out with LeBron James in the near future here. And Looney Tunes Back in Action is the follow-up to Space Jam that 
sort of killed the Looney Tunes hopes of making it back into the movies. And so I'm excited to talk about both of these as we continue on with this marathon. Christian, any thoughts? Not one. Not one. Stay tuned next week, folks. We're going to look at Space Jam, which is not streaming anywhere, unfortunately. From what I saw, if you have BET+, Plus, that is part of the Prime Video BET Plus combo package. So go for that. Otherwise, you'll be, like Christian and myself, renting it. And Looney Tunes Back in Action is available on HBO Max. And, of course, if you have not seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit and you want to check it out, it is on Disney+. Plus. But that is our show. If you've reached this point in the episode, again, thanks so much. Christian and I really are honored to have had our episodes downloaded a thousand times. That means a lot to know that people are out there listening and enjoying the show. If you wouldn't mind, if you are enjoying the show, there are a few things that you could do to support us here. As always, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, that helps us reach new listeners on that app. You also can download our episodes on Spotify or Podbean, wherever else you like to listen to podcasts. We also are on Twitter, at CinemaDrip. We're trying to be better about using that Twitter there, so feel free to tweet at us. We'd love to know your thoughts on the episodes and engage with you there. We also have an email, cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com, where you can drop us a line and provide us some feedback. And we've read emails on the show, live on the air. And we definitely love to incorporate some listener recommendations in the future. So feel free to shout out some movies we should discuss as part of this blood of the month or things that we should consider discussing on future shows. Lastly, Christian and myself are on Letterboxd where you can follow along with the things that we are rating and reviewing. Christian, any any hot reviews you're really proud of recently that you want to plug? No, although I will be putting a Malcolm and Marie review out soon. Christian's thoughts on Malcolm and Marie. I am a little behind as per usual, but I recently watched The Mummy in anticipation of Looney Tunes back in action. Some Brendan Fraser starring movies. Let me tell you, The Mummy, I'd never seen it. That's a it's it's a good movie. It is a good blockbuster action adventure Indiana Jones style movie. Wow. I'm a fan. You can see more of my thoughts on Letterboxd. Christian, I end pretty much every show by asking you, and I'm going to ask you it again. Any final thoughts for the folks listening at home? I'm just going to say this is like the fourth time you've asked me final thoughts within the past five minutes. It really is. I would say it's the second time, but the first time was about... Okay, third time. First time was about Roger Rabbit. Second time, it was about something else. Uh, It was about Looney Tunes. And now it's about the show. And I always ask you at the end of the show, so don't get mad at me, Christian. As always, I'm asking Christian if he has any final thoughts. And I am Scott Lenz. He's Christian Newbies. And this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.